Welcome back to another episode of Me and Mr. A's. I'm Nick, the me part, and right there is Mr. A's. Yes, my name is Daryl. No, I was not named after Daryl Hall. My parents were not that cool. <laughs> the topic of today's show is something that we're calling Strange Obsessions, which sounds a little bit like something you might find at the Hustler store. But that's not where we're going with it. Everybody kind of has their their musical wheelhouse, you know, whether they like pop, whether they like rock, jazz, country, whatever. Even if you like multiple musical disciplines, you probably have kind of your comfort zone. And then there are those artists or whatever that just don't seem to make any sense, but you like them anyway. <laughs> and so that's what a strange obsession is by our definition for the purposes of this show. And that's what uh, we're going to be talking about. Those artists that even we can't really explain how we came to like them, why we like them, but we just do. So where would you like to start? Um... <laughs> I can start. Go ahead. At the beginning. Knock yourself out. Uh, first one up is, for me, Sonny Chirac. He is a avant-garde jazz guitarist who's... Uh, I, I, the way I found out about him was that he was doing the theme song for Space Ghost Coast to Coast, and they put out a CD... At a, when I was working at a CD shop, and I heard the guitarist playing, and I'm like, holy fuck, that guy's amazing. <laughs> and so I had no idea who he was, and I just said, okay, I have to, you know, hear more about this guy. And it, it turns out that he's been uh, writing the fringes of, of jazz for, well, he was writing them for a while. He's dead now, so, but he... Uh, he was... Now he's just riding the fringes of the fringe. <laughs> was, the, was the soundtrack album all him, or was his only track on it the, I, the main theme? I think he was the only... The only track on there was him was doing the theme, and I okay. think it was other was I, all sorts of weird people, and I probably the guest... The, the show was the precursor to everything that's on uh, a comedy... Adult or, Swim. Uh, Adult Swim. So it was... Uh, animated they, versions of Space Ghost, which was a 70s cartoon. Is that right? He was probably the 60s. He's one of those second-tier Hanna-Barbera characters. Sort of like how they have Har Harvey Birdman, attorney at law, and a lot of the youngsters probably don't realize that that is based on an actual superhero <laughs> named Birdman. <laughs> yeah, no. Space Ghost is kind of from the Birdman school, and they made him a uh, kind of a, a pompous talk show host, right? Yes, and he would interview people like uh, Ozzy Osbourne and Seth Green and, uh, you know, all sorts of weird people. And I think those people might have done something for the, the album that was out. Now, Chirac, uh, about the time that Space Ghost was on, which that premiered like in the mid-90s, I think, mm -hmm. he was already in his 50s or 60s, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. And he's one of those guys that, like you said, had been on the fringes. And was it was it because he was so open to rock? So he was so open to rock so the jazz people didn't take him seriously? But because he had his roots in jazz, the rock people didn't necessarily know who he was. Do you think that's what the story was? I think he was just odd. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Because didn't he work with Bill Laswell a lot? In, right in that 90s period, that was kind of what his you know resurrection... I assume that's probably how he got the 
Space Ghost gig, just because he was coming back making albums with him. He'd done something uh, with uh, Material, and he'd done other uh, Blaswell project, and they also worked in a, a band that I'm going to talk about later called Last Exit. And because Bill Laswell, for folks who don't know, I mean, he's that's a whole other show. But uh, I guess the most succinct way I can put it is he is the producer who brought the guitarist Buckethead to prominence. <laughs> so that kind of gives you an, a little taste of, of Bill Laswell's ovure, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> I'm not French. Yes, yeah, but so he he didn't have a he was very he. uh I I play guitar and I put out an instrumental guitar album. And this is you personally. You're talking personally. About. Yes. You're not speaking as Sonny Chirac. No, no, no. You Nick. But he, but this, he influenced how I did it um, because of what he did. Uh, he he was very. I, I would say he had a very emotional playing style, but it wasn't always. Uh, boy, it, it wasn't always correct. I mean, he kind of left in weird side notes when he when his guitar scronked a bit. He just sort of worked with it. <laughs> he was very improvisational, but incredibly emotional in his guitar playing. And I think that worked whether you worked in rock or whether you worked in jazz. But he never really said, you know, all right, as far as I can tell, in you know. Uh, his music, he never really said, okay, I'm definitely a rock guy or I'm definitely a jazz guy. He just played with whoever wanted to play with him. And what do you, do you know much about his, either his backstory or you know, kind of how his, his career evolved? Because he is, he's one of those guys that, if you read Rolling Stone, you know, you see, I mean, he, that's, Rolling Stone's a major publication. I mean, it's not as though you had to be reading fanzines. Every now and again, you'd read about, Mm-hmm. Sonny Chirac. So, I mean, how much do you really know about the guy, or is it just pretty much I, his music? I really only know his albums. I mean, I, I've listened to pretty much everything he's done, and including the uh, the he, he had some albums in the early '60s or you know mid to late '60s where he did with his wife Linda, who I can only equate to Yoko Ono. Oh, nice. So she never sang lyrics pretty much. I think there was one song where she actually sang it as a song because they did a cover. But in other words, she used her voice as a <laughs> as her own instrument <laughs> or weapon of mass annoyance. Um, and so, uh, you know, yeah, she is... <laughs> those albums are not easy to listen to. I, I want to listen to it for his uh, solo take on things, but she's she kind of annoys me with her and, and he was also incredibly prolific, not only as a solo artist, but as a sideman, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he worked with Miles Davis and Pharaoh Sanders, and he did uh, John... Uh, I, I always want to say Jim Zorn, who was the Seattle's uh, quarterback for Seahawks. Jim Zorn. John Zorn. John. 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 John Zorn. And so, yeah, he's... He 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 played with. Oh, he had the. There's a one that, I, that isn't on Spotify, but he did one with a guitarist, Nikki, and I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. It's it's like S K O P E T L I A T S. But he sounds was, like he's from Iceland. He was uh, on a Laswell label. Yeah. So. Well, we're we gonna move on. Yeah. Why don't you take one? Um. Well, you had said uh, off-air before we started doing the show that all your choices kind of have a theme. 
And a couple of mine have a theme, too, completely different from your theme. Um, but I'll just kind of dive into it. My, my first pick is Isaac Hayes. And it, it came... My interest in Isaac Hayes, I'm pretty sure, came from a confluence of my interest in funk... And which led me to an interest in black black exploitation films from the 70s, and of course, a lot of people say the best black exploitation film ever made was Shaft. Yeah. And of course, Isaac Hayes did the the soundtrack <laughs> for Shaft. Um, but Isaac Hayes is one of those strange cases for people of our generation, I think, because his. Uh, his greatest success happened when you and I were very, very young, and we kind of missed the whole Isaac Hayes thing. And by the time Isaac Hayes entered our consciousness, he was uh, the guy who had the really thick beard that Rick Ross uses now. Um, and then he was chef on South Park. Oh yeah. And then he, you know, the Scientology guy. And but every now and again you would you would just hear about this you know what a genius he was, and I just you know I kind of felt like I must be missing the boat here, and so like I said I, I've been interested in, in funk music for a long time. It started out with old school funk from the the eighties and late seventies, and then it kind of started going backward from from there, and I'd kind of reached a point where. I had really lost interest in modern music and had pretty much carpet bombed the 80s as much as I possibly could. I mean, I just, I've heard so much 80s music. I own so much 80s music. So I started working backwards and I thought, well, let me dip my toe into the 70s and see what's, what's out there. And it just so happened that about the time this was going through my mind, they started doing some reissues of some of his, some of Isaac Hayes' more classic albums. And it started with, uh, Hot Buttered Soul. Um, which is his second album, but apparently his first album as what we know as Isaac Hayes. I mean, his very first album, I think it's called Introducing Isaac Hayes. And I think he's wearing a top hat and tails and he's doing like, <laughs> wow, doing like standards. Um, and then his very next album, all of a sudden he's not wearing a shirt and he's got the big thick rope chain on <laughs> and he's inventing a different kind of uh, soul music. So I don't really know how much you know about Hayes, but uh, pretty much the line on him is that you know, he started out as a staff writer at Stax Records, which is a big uh, Southern Soul label. Uh, probably the closest parallel that we could make would be Motown, but Stax was a hell of a lot grittier. Yeah, they were the. Wasn't that like? Uh I was trying to think of who's uh, like uh, sitting on the dock of the bay. Wasn't that like Otis Redding? Yeah, Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, that kind of stuff. And so he was a, a staff writer for them and wrote a lot of... I know he wrote uh, Hold On, I'm Coming. Uh, I'm pretty sure he wrote or co-wrote Soul Man. Wow. So he wrote a lot of classics. Did not know that. And then as he... And he was also you know a session guy and a producer and arranger and all that kind of stuff. And the really interesting thing about his early solo albums is he would take the whitest music, the Carpenters, Burt Bacharach, and do new arrangements of them 
and and cover these songs as these these soul numbers. And I just, the more I got into it, I was like, I just, I need more. So <laughs> I started with Hot Buttered Soul and Black Moses. Did you ever hear the first album? I have not. I really should, but I haven't. Because I, I subsequently ended up buying pretty much everything of his that's still in print. Um, but I've never sought that one out because it just scares me a little. Um, so yeah, Hot Buttered Soul. And then there were two albums in the middle. And then Black Moses came out. Hot Buttered Soul and Black Moses are considered kind of his big classic works. So I started with those. Uh, Black Moses was a, a double album. Yeah. Uh, and then I got the Shaft soundtrack, which it was also a double album. Only three of the songs on that album are vocal tracks. So it's, oh, really? it's instrumental otherwise. And it's, it's really cool. My and then parents just had it on LP. <laughs> Your parents had it on LP? Yes. <laughs> They had all sorts of weird stuff. So you know, everything from uh, John Denver and uh, Olivia Newton-John to the Shaft soundtrack. So, And apparently, I know on, a, on at least one of the tracks, I don't know about the rest of the album, but on at least one of the tracks, his backing band was the Barquets hmm. on that Shaft soundtrack. Um, so after his kind of early 70s heyday, he started getting influenced by disco and... Uh, people pretty much act like the, the creative period ended after Black Moses, which I think came out in 73 or 74. But I've snapped up his entire 70s output, and I don't really hear... To me, the, uh, the, the, the heavy disco influence didn't really start creeping in until about 78 or 79. And there's a little bit of a... A little late on the uh, drop there. Yeah. There's a little <laughs> bit of a, of a quality drop-off, but... Uh, I mean, he's got, like I said, I've got them all. And there are some days where I'm uh, I'm at work, and I've got all my Isaac Hayes CDs at work, and I'm just like, it's going to be an Isaac kind of a day. And I just start <laughs> playing them one after another. Hot Buttered Soul, uh, the Isaac Hayes Movement, um, To Be Continued, Black Moses, um, Juicy Fruit is one of his bigger uh, disco records. Chocolate Chip is one of his albums. Okay, so now I, uh, as far as funk goes, I l- had no more of like George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, something like that. So, and to me, I always just sort of uh, equated him with a more disco-y sound. So where does he fall in with... Where, where is his sound? I mean, is he does he sound like Barry White? I mean, does he does he go weird spoken word things like George Clinton? Is he? That's actually that's a really good question because I guess one of the points that I wanted to make is that it was a big leap for me to go from funk to this because even as much as I love funk, I'd always kind of stayed away from soul music because soul music to me was always very slow, very dirge like, and just didn't have much of appeal to me. Well, the vast majority of Isaac Hayes' classic period music is slow and dirge-like, and I can't get enough of it. Uh, Barry White is probably a good correlation because you know, Barry also kind of had that, that lover man persona. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I've heard it described, though, is that uh, Barry White's sexuality was a little bit safe. And with Isaac Hayes, he was just kind of like the, you know, the black man dingo kind of in your face sort of a thing. 
and so it was not as palatable to a white audience, I guess. Hmm. Uh, he does a lot of spoken word stuff, but it's it not... Was, it was palatable to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> he was palatable to your parents, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about your mom, but... Uh, he does spoken word stuff, but it's not its not like um, the precursor to rapping, which I th- that's what I correlate a lot of George Clinton stuff with. Yeah. It's just, it's more Barry White bedroom seduction. Oh, okay. Kind of stuff. So. So what are some good songs to to look for? I mean, you're naming albums, but like, is there quintessential songs that they should hear? Yeah. I think um, Walk On By from the Hot Buttered Soul album. That is the Burt Bacharach song. You should listen to... His cover of that. Oh, yeah, that sounds... He does Close <laughs> to You by the Carpenters on Black Moses. That is... It's an amazing... It's an amazing song. I love the Chocolate Chip album. The album's called Chocolate Chip. There's a song on there called Chocolate Chip. And then there's the instrumental version of Chocolate Chip. And to me, that album sounds like the lost soundtrack to a black exploitation film that was never made. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you... Th- you know, Shaft, the, 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 the theme song to Shaft... Um, is about as funky as he gets, really. And the, you know, that classic sort of wah-wah guitar. Mm-hmm. You don't hear that anywhere else. Oh, really? He doesn't use that in any other, in any other song. So was this thing, uh, do you know if it was produced by somebody else than his normal, uh, album producer? The soundtrack? Yeah. That I do not know. Hmm. That's a good question. I'm not, I don't know. And what about his, he, I remember, this was probably a while ago, but I remember you playing me. He had a comeback album. Yes. And has he done something to anything since then? Uh, well, you know, he's, he's, he's no longer with us. Oh, he's dead. Okay, good. Oh. Um, and that album, Branded, was his last album of new material. When did that come out? Oh, uh, Nick. Uh, I'm going to say mid to late 90s, but I could be totally wrong. It may have come I, out. That's it, what I was thinking. I was thinking I was, yeah, so I was thinking mid-90s. He does a version of Sting's Fragile on that one That's that's really awesome. He actually breaks it up into three tracks on the album because it's so long. It's got the, uh, it's got the introduction, then the actual song, and then the outro. And they're all, it's busted up into three tracks. You can listen to it in sections if you'd like. I think the whole thing together is like about nine minutes long. That's another, uh, big thing is like his single albums, but have four and five songs on them. Wow. I mean, he's got, he's got one album called Joy, and the title track is 15 minutes. That's another good one to look up, Joy. Hmm. And so is it is it all singing, or is it some of the, you know, uh, spoken seduction in the middle of it, or is he, you know, break out a flute solo? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> in other words, how does he make a song last 15, 15 minutes? Yes. Just gets a damn good groove going and lets okay. it ride. There are some of his songs that, that do have... Uh, the very first song on um, the Isaac Hayes Movement album... Starts off with like a two and a half minute, <laughs> two and a half minute spoken word section. Uh, oh, his version of "By the Time I Get to Phoenix" by um, Jimmy, Jimmy Webb. <laughs> no, that's "By the Time I Get to Arizona." Sorry, uh, that that that's the long version of that song is like eleven minutes, and I bet you half of it is a spoken word type of a thing. Hmm. That can get a little old. True. 
but you just kind of, yeah, hey, it's Ike. You put up with it. Oh, yeah. I, I've noticed that with uh, some of the uh, George Clinton stuff is that they would just sort of go off on a tangent for a while and, you know, there'd be sort of like a, you know, musical bed while he just sort <laughs> of, you know, told you about, uh, uh, what was it, Chocolate City? Or, yeah, just, you know, all sorts of weird stuff and, you know. Electric spanking of war babies. And, <laughs> yes. Well, the you know, the, the, like I said, there are a, a handful of, of very well-known songs where he does do that. But as for as for much as that is associated with him, he does not do it as much as people would think. Hmm. I mean, I can think of maybe three or four songs in his entire classic canon where that happens. Would you say that there maybe? Again, drawn on my one experience of Clinton, where they seem to kind of be built as a as an album rather than like a collection of singles if he's making these things maybe 15 minute tracks are they are they really built as like i would say a concept album maybe but at least built as a as a one long piece rather than you know single after single i'd have to say yes because i never say to myself oh i really want to listen to song x right now it's always i want to listen to this particular album. album yeah so yeah they all kind of have their own mood. The moods really don't differ that much. I mean, you could probably say, and I'm talking classic period stuff now, the entire mm-hmm. 70s output, uh, they all pretty much have the same mood. But, my God, it, it's so well done. Um, like I said, I just, once I started, I could not stop. It was like, I have to have more. <laughs> you could almost make, you know, it's like the sole equivalent of ACDC. If you like one, you'll like them all. <laughs> And some people might say, well, if all their albums sound alike, why don't you just own one album? Well, you know, you just like it so much, you'd like to hear it again. <laughs> I, I completely agree with that. So that's Strange Obsession number one, Isaac Hayes. Um, my second one, which we will get into uh, later, also continues on the kind of 1970s theme. So let's go back to you. All right. This next one is going to... Uh, go from Last Exit to Miles Davis. So Last Exit is Sonny Chirac's band. He played with Bill Laswell, um, Ronald Shannon Jackson, and Peter, and since it's German and I don't speak German, I'm not sure how Bratzman, Bratzman, any idea? No. We'll call him Bratwurst. <laughs> Maybe some of our German fans, because... Everybody in Podcastville, someone from Germany downloaded the show. <laughs> Shoot us an email at mr80s at rocketmail.com and let us know. Exactly. Wherever you are, wherever you are on the planet. We had a download from Japan, too. So uh, they they are a, a, a noisy, loud punk rock band disguised as a jazz band. What year are we talking about here? And this would be late 70s to early uh, to mid 80s. Okay. And I, again, I, I, I know of them, but I don't really know how they got together. But when I started researching Sonny Chirac and... I found Last Exit, and at the time when I was doing this, which was, you know, mid-90s, they were just reviving, putting out albums, because apparently they only had one album that I've ever 
found, and I actually found it as a cassette cutout bin for a dollar. Mm-hmm. And that was a studio album. But they have probably ten live albums done from who knows where and where the tapes came from. And, you know, it's just sort of, you know, they, they, they were reissuing or issuing these things just as I started figuring out who the hell he was. Were there, were there new original compositions or were they just kind of uh, doing different versions of the same songs? Or were they doing covers? Uh, they did their own songs. Um, one of the songs called Dick Dogs uh, was covered... Uh, was on uh, Sonny's uh, solo album, and he also did it when he did live in New York with his Sonny Chirac band. Um, but it's almost like you, they were just sort of a jumping-off point for them to play loud, aggressive, insane jazz rock. <laughs> and as I said before, that you know uh, his solo efforts were very. Uh, had a very musical quality, very lyrical, very melodic, very fun. This, this shit was like being punched in the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> and you liked that. I, I do. I, I think it's insane. I mean, it's just, you know, they'll, they'll start, you know, Ronald Shannon Dra- Jackson, as we both remembered, had a very extremely well reviewed album in Rolling Stone called Red Warrior, mm-hmm. which was also coming out around this period. And he is—he's a solo jazz drummer who could almost be characterized as the percussion equivalent of Sonny Chirac as far as his career tra- trajectory. Exactly, and he—but he's—he's really loud and aggressive as a drummer. And it, you know, uh, Sonny was his most wildly aggressive and scronkiness. And uh, Peter, whatever your name is, Broxman is the uh, saxophonist. And he wails and screeches like someone stepped on a cat, <laughs> and um, and Laswell plays bass and just flies all over the fretboards. I mean, it's just it's almost insane how you can uh, figure out: are they actually just are they playing a song? Are they just all soloing at once? Tuning I mean, it's up? Just, it's yeah. Oh, it's really crazy. But then they'll just go off and be insane and then go back and then they'll start doing a, a, a you know a 4-4 four, four beat and then they'll start playing some song and then and then it'll just go off again and they'll just be like you know a freight train running and I, 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 this had to be live in the studio then wouldn't you think well some of these things were live in specifically said live from somewhere mm-hmm. you know live from uh, I can't remember any of them bar, but there's the, um, there was one that's actually called like the live cassette, which <laughs> obviously must have been released at a cassette at some point, but it, they all, they would play jazz festivals in Europe. And I really, really wish I would have, you know, been able to see a crowd watch these people play because I mean, if you're watching a jazz festival and you're seeing, you know, I don't know, modern times, you're seeing a, you know, uh, Miles Davis, you're seeing uh, John Coltrane, I don't know, you're seeing just normal jazz, and then all of a sudden you see these people just fucking make your ears bleed. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that, that would be awesome. And uh, to me, uh, that's, uh, they're, they're exciting. I mean, they are, 
They are revolutionarily weird, exciting jazz. And do you know what this Peter guy's background was? Because we know we know Ronald and Sonny were jazz. We mm-hmm. know that Laswell is kind of defies categorization and is mainly Absolutely. a producer. So what do we know about this Peter dude? Absolutely nothing other than he was uh, considered avant-garde, which makes sense. pretty much everyone in the band was <laughs> yeah. given that title. Yeah. So I, I, it makes sense that they would all get together and make a band. I mean, <laughs> it's almost like a like a like the super group of weird, <laughs> and and I mean that in the best possible sense. They are. Uh, so what kind of mood are you in when you put this thing on? Boy, I, when you're in the mood for something, uh, when I when I want to hear something that's not that's completely insane. <laughs> I mean, it's just you, you, the it's, so it's music to mutilate bodies too. <laughs> oh wow, music to watch Dexter too. I guess yeah. maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I I I have so many different musical genres that I listen to. I just, you know, at some point there's always a reason to come back and listen to it again. I mean, when you, when we, when I, when I hear, uh, Miles Davis doing his fusion era, which is where this leaps to next, is that it's like listening to, um, to an improvisation, but you know where they're going to go. So it's interesting and exciting. Even when you've heard it, because you still kind of see something else in how they played there, you know, how they went there and where they went to after they went there. It's just, it, it, if you like, um, rock, heavy metal, you might like this. I mean, it's kind of the jazz equivalent of Cookie Monster vocals. Hmm. It is really weird and uncompromising and uh, if you play this for 90% of the world, they'll slap you and tell you to turn that shit off. It's really obnoxious jazz. So sort of like heavy metal played by PhDs. Yeah. There you go. All right. I'm down. Yeah. Uh, then uh, I would suggest um, songs, but really, you just need to buy an album. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Which one's most widely available, as far as you know? None of them. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, just really. Uh, I can't say this thing appeals to more than like ten people. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 really really weird and out there. But there's enough to make. You know, they keep finding tapes and releasing them. I mean, when I was looking at them in the mid '90s, there was three. There was, you know, the uh, the 87 cassette recordings, which was the apparently most widely available one because it's still available and it's on Spotify. And from there they had From the Vault, which was released in, I think, 95. As, you know, I, I, it was actually like had a release date coming up as I was looking for stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, well, I'll have to get that when it comes out. It's always cool when you discover something new from the past and you find out, oh, my gosh, they're still active and there's something coming out soon. Yeah, that was awesome. And uh, since I've looked up on on, uh, Spotify again, there's more new stuff. So 
how, you know, uh, how you're going to find this stuff, uh, buy Spotify. <laughs> that's, that's, they're, they're, they have stuff on there. Uh, I don't expect that a lot of record stores are going to carry this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazon, you know, go online, maybe find something there. And maybe somebody's got some stuff on YouTube so you can sample it. You just never know. I hope so. You just I, have I, to probably. If nothing else, I should do that because I, I don't really pay much attention to YouTube, but I would love to see a crowd shot of them <laughs> playing because I really want to see how the hell someone takes this. YouTube's a crapshoot. You never know what you're going to yeah. find. They might not necessarily have what you're looking for, or they might have like a crappy shot on a cell phone version of what you're looking for, but. It can be a good place to start. So type in last exit, and then that's so so general. You're probably going to want to type in Sonny Chirac or Bill Laswell or something along with it to just narrow down the search a little bit. Yeah, whenever I search them, I always get uh, Pearl Jam did a song called Last Exit from Vitology. So I always see that when I'm searching. Yeah. But it's it's worth checking out. It's it it. it even if you don't like it, you should at least hear it just to go, holy crap, someone released that. <laughs> <laughs> There's your words of wisdom <laughs> for the day. Holy crap, someone released that. Well, going back to the 1970s for me is a gentleman that I'm so thankful that I discovered, but just he does not fit in to my normal musical world anywhere. I was stunned. I'm talking about Glenn Campbell. I was stunned when I was actually considering buying my first Glenn Campbell album. I'm like, this is this is Glenn Campbell. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> All I knew about Glenn Campbell was... He was the drunk cokehead who had the May-December romance with Tanya Tucker back in the late 70s, early 80s. He was like 44, and she was 19, and they did drugs and smacked the shit out of each other. Wow. Uh, and he was just kind of a joke to me. It's just kind of like Glenn frickin' Campbell. He was one of those guys that was famous for being famous huh. in my eyes. He was sort of like Zsa, Zsa Gabor with a guitar. Was like, <laughs> oh, look, it's Glenn Campbell. And uh, one of the radio stations that I worked at played old people music. And his three big hits with uh, songwriter Jimmy Webb were in regular rotation. Uh, Galveston, Wichita Lineman, and By the Time I Get to Phoenix. And uh, over the years, Wichita Lineman has... It had just burrowed its way into my head. And... A year or so ago, it was in there, and I couldn't get it out, and I was just like, I was doing some reading up on it, and about, you know, reading about Glenn Campbell's relationship with Jimmy Webb, because Jimmy Webb was strictly a songwriter. He wrote a lot of songs that Glenn Campbell performed. Uh, Jimmy Webb wrote for other artists, and even other artists were recording and releasing these songs as Glenn Campbell was. But it always kept coming back to the fact that Glenn Campbell pretty much ended up recording what was widely accepted as the definitive versions of these songs written by Jimmy Webb. So it started with that. It started with, uh, okay, let me lay my hands on some stuff that Jimmy Webb wrote that Glenn Campbell performed. It just so happens there is a CD out there that compiled, I don't even know if it was all, but about 20 of the songs throughout Glenn's entire career 
um, that Jimmy Webb had written and Campbell had recorded. And um, it just blew the top of my head off. I was just like, wow, there is a lot more to this guy than Wichita Lineman. And it just sort of evolved from there. Now, in hindsight, what is very strange, of course, is that in the last few months we have discovered that Glenn Campbell was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And he has released what he says is going to be his final studio album and is embarking on his farewell tour and was kind of back in the news after being dormant for a very long period of time. And so it was very strange that this artist that had been around for a very long time that I was just now starting to get into just because of my own volition, now all of a sudden was being talked about in the press again. And, you know, I was able to read about him. And there was actually a fantastic feature article about him uh, shortly after uh, he went public with the diagnosis in Rolling Stone magazine, of all places. That's probably the best profile that I have read um, of him. And Tom Petty said something in that interview that really kind of resonated with me, which is that Glenn Campbell has never been cool. <laughs> it's never been cool to Aww. like Glenn Campbell. But his songs are so good that it just doesn't matter. <laughs> and that's kind of where I am at with it. And so this this whole Glenn Campbell, Jimmy Webb fascination led into an exploration of his entire career. And you know, his, his commercial heyday was in the 70s. And you know, everybody remembers Rhinestone Cowboy and Southern Nights. That's probably from 77 to 79, the period that we're talking about there and uh the more that i found out about him he really was country by default and i think that might be why i like it because it doesn't even though he was always on the country charts and he was definitely considered a country artist Mm -hmm. uh he's really more countrypolitan than anything else which countrypolitan was that subgenre of country that was popular in the late 70s where a lot of songs were kind of crossing over. One of the like Kenny Rogers? Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton. One of the unsung kings of country politan is a fella named uh, Charlie Rich. Not Charlie Pride. You're thinking of the only black guy that records country music if you're thinking <laughs> Charlie Pride. This was Charlie Rich. His nickname was the Silver Fox, and his big hit was Behind Not Clo- Big and Rich. <laughs> no. Behind Closed Doors, hmm. which I would hum a few bars, but I don't want to get charged any money by BMI <laughs> or ASCAP, so I won't. Uh, but so it was, it was more of a, uh, an adult pop influenced style of country. That is what Glenn excelled at. But you know, his roots were in rock. He was a member of the, uh, Beach Boys touring band for a while when, um, when Brian first went off his rocker and stopped touring, Glenn Campbell was the replacement before Bruce Johnston. Um, For singing or just playing guitar? Playing guitar and, and singing parts of the harmonies. He's an excellent vocalist, an excellent guitar player, uh, an excellent interpreter of songs. An excellent interpreter of songs. Like Isaac Hayes. And, and Sinatra, you know, the way Sinatra can take a lyric and make it sound like it was written just for him, mm-hmm. he's really got that, that gift. And... I, I just never in a million years thought that I would end up going down Glen Campbell Avenue. And it still shocks me. Uh, but I just get endless enjoyment out of his music. And I've, uh, I've got stuff from 
all facets of his career, from the early days in the 60s all the way up to his brand new album, Ghost on the Canvas, which just came out. So, What would you say is your favorite era from 60s on up? I mean... I th- my 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 favorite album of his that I've got it's a it's a twofer that's uh, available from Australia and it's got the album Rhinestone Cowboy and the album Bloodline plus a couple of bonus tracks on one CD so we're talking about maybe seventy seven seventy eight <laughs> and that's my my favorite Glenn Campbell CD that I own <laughs> the new album though is freaking awesome uh, the new album has got songwriting help from uh, Paul Westerberg, uh, Jimmy Corgan, uh, Billy Corgan. Corgan. Billy Corgan um, wrote a track on there. And the production really reminds me a lot of kind of uh, the, the, the production Jeff Lynn was doing for Tom Petty during like the Traveling Wilburys era. So if you're a fan of that kind of. Not the sparse Rick Rubin for Johnny Cash production. Right. Um, <clears throat> And, and you know that that, that that era of Petty definitely had sort of a country influence, so it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I keep telling people that if if you like Full Moon Fever, if you like Into the Great Wide Open by the Heartbreakers, if you like the Traveling Wilburys album, you're probably going to like the new Glenn Campbell album. Interesting. That uh, just because you remind me of that, I picked up a, a CD in a cutout bin, and I think the artist's name was Juliana Ray. Okay. And it was produced by. Jeff Lynn. And it it sounded like they like they took tracks that they didn't use for like Tom Petty <laughs> and just brought her in to sing like he like she was his girlfriend and he's like, Oh honey here, just use this. It's a you know, it's an old track. Just go for it and we'll put out an album. Because it, it sounded way too much like uh like 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 uh, Tom Petty's era, you know, Jeff Lynn produced stuff. So it's not like that. It actually sounds more like it has the production quality, but it isn't like they just sort of cut Tom Petty out and stuck Glenn Campbell in, I assume. No, and it doesn't have that. It's not quite as Birds-influenced as that era of the Jeff Lynne Productions was, but it's it's very similar, and it's kind of the closest correlation that I can draw. Okay. I know the, the 70s period, um, a, lot of, a lot of times... Uh, well, I've heard it described, and I thought this was a great description. Listening to Glenn Campbell in the 70s is like watching an episode of The Rockford Files, which I thought was a very interesting way to put it. Interesting. And I think that it's apropos. When I think of the 1970s, and, you know, again, I'm shocked that I've gotten into music from the 70s because being born in the 70s, raised in... You know, the early years in the 70s, and then I really felt like the 80s was the decade that was made for me. And when I think of the 70s, I bet you it's the exact same stuff that you think of. I think of brown plaid. Mm-hmm. I think of really big collars. Yeah. Um, I just I think of economic and political turmoil, uh, and I just think of an ugly period that we need to forget about. <laughs> um, but within all of that, there is still a popular culture that is very worth exploring, which is where Glenn Campbell fits in, where black exploitation films fit in, where Isaac Hayes fits in. There's just I, I had wrongly ignored that period for far too long, and I'm finding a lot of stuff that's that's really cool to explore in there. Speaking of uh, 
just off a mild tangent. Do you have Netflix? I do not. Okay. There was a uh, thing I put on my queue recently that I want to see. I think it's called American Grindhouse, maybe, and it was supposed to be something about the the history of the Grindhouse and the black exploitation era of film. Uh huh. I was just curious. Like a documentary? Yeah. No, I have not. Hmm. So I think I've said my piece about Glenn Campbell. Just just a, an amazing artist and much more than the guy who used to slap around Tanya Tucker. There's a lot more to the guy than that. I'll have to check out the uh, Ghost on the Canvas. Oh, what, uh, what about, uh, are there any, maybe not the, the 70s area that you mentioned, but anything from 60s or 80s that people might want to check out? There is... Pretty much anything he did with Webb, you know, I mean, I think most people know Wichita Lineman and, and Galveston. And probably know it if I heard it, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure that doesn't, he would. Yeah. Uh, one song that you must hear, and it's, it's actually from the 80s, but Jimmy Webb wrote it. It's, uh, it's a song called Still Within the Sound of My Voice that uh, the first time I heard it, it nearly brought me to tears. It was just, I'm like, holy crap, where has this song been all my life? <laughs> so if you do anything... After listening to this show, try to find somewhere where you can sample Still Within the Sound of My Voice by Glenn Campbell. It just, it blew the top of my head off. It was just, it was just an amazing experience to hear that song for the first time. Sometimes I will play it in my office. I'll close the door so I don't annoy people. I'll play it ten times in a row. <laughs> so. Wow, oh, okay. Interesting. Um, for my thing, uh, I'm going into uh, Miles Davis. As you can tell from the theme of these things is uh, the fusion jazz rock era that they all sort of uh, meld together. Uh, Miles Davis obviously can't really be a strange obsession because he is, you know, one of the preeminent jazz artists of our time. But, <laughs> again, as when I was, you know, when I started listening to Sonny Chirac and I moved on to Last Exit, uh, you know, that was fusion, but people didn't really, uh, it was the, it was the farthest end of fusion. So I wanted to go, you know, see what the beginning of fusion was. And beginning of fusion, from what I can tell, is Miles Davis. <laughs> so he, he, uh, he did, uh, in a Silent Way and Phillies de Kilimanjaro, and apparently those are named usually as the the intro to Fusion. So not Bitches Brew. Well, the, those were the two albums right before it. So those were um, improvisational but not really electrified. When you get to Bitches Brew, that's when he uh, pulls in... You know, electric guitars, heavy electric guitars, heavy uh, electrified organ from uh, Chikoria, and that you know pretty much is the first fusion album. But these ones are the the precursors, the intros to it. How did they get there? The on ramp, exactly. And again, if you if you don't listen to jazz. Then you might just think, oh well, it's just it's still just jazz, you know. I mean, I've heard electric guitars playing jazz; it's still the same thing. This really is different. I mean, to me, you've heard Bitches Brew. It's funny because that's one of those records when I was a kid that kept showing up on the hundred best albums of all time oh, yeah. or whatever, and so I did actually 
I think, my God, I think I actually checked it out of the library and I listened <laughs> to it. And my ears were not fully developed at the time. I'm not even sure that I was 20 years old yet when I listened to it. And I was just like, what in the hell is this shit? <laughs> yes. And, and from what I've read, that was the reaction of, uh, jazz people. Um, which is to me very interesting. I mean, uh, you know, uh, when I look on this thing and in mid nineties, and read about what they said about it when these thumbs came out in between basically like 69 and 72 uh are all these uh fusion albums from Miles Davis and the jazz reviewers hated it because it wasn't jazz enough but it wasn't rock enough to get on rock radio uh, from what again, from what I read, Miles Davis was seeing the success of Jimi Hendrix and the success of Sly and the Family Stone, and he wanted to get um, the the black youth who was listening to those records and get them interested in jazz. So he wanted to find a way to bridge the gap between jazz and rock, but still make it jazz enough. That, you know, that they would know it's jazz and not just, you know, uh, a ripoff of a rock record. So there's, you know, it's a jazz album, but it's, you know, as he moves into the 70s, it becomes more funk and he gets three guitarists going and they all have a very Hendrix-like influence in there. He gets, you know, three percussionists. I mean, he just really ends up making this, you know, like 20-man band of jazz, funk, rock. Well, you know, Bitches Brew uh, was not very compositional. It was very freeform. Oh, yes. That's how I recall it. Now, I remember uh, I remember uh, Phil's To Kilimanjaro. Mm-hmm. That one definitely had more of a compositional aspect to it. Oh, yes. And you had, back in the 90s, I think it was, some label had put out, I think, an official bootleg of some live album from Japan. It was one of the first Digipack albums. Yep. Um, what was the title of that thing? That was uh, Dark Magus. Magnus? Dark, Magnus. Yeah, Dark Magnus, Dark Mangus, something Magus. like that. That was an excellent that was an excellent album. For me, that, I mean, I liked that a hundred times better than Bitches Brew. Dark Magus, M-A-G-U-S, live at Carnegie. Because that seemed to really, uh, he was, you know, still being very freeform, but it also, it had more of a, in this I'm kind of working from memory here, but it, it had, it had something to kind of keep you interested, whether it was a consistent beat or whether it was a consistent melody line. I mean, mm-hmm. it just, it was, it was weird, but it, it seemed like it had a point. Exactly. Is that a fair statement? Oh yes, I, I Bitches Brew was uh, is in hindsight looked as you know where it started, but I really think that that was still more jazz than where he ends up. Uh, when he goes farther into this uh, exploration, like the Dark Magus and uh, the two that I would suggest are the preeminent versions of what he did. One is called Agartha, A-G-H-A-R-T-A, and the other is called Pangea. It's kind of like, I remember the first time I watched Citizen Kane, I was with you. (laughs) And I'm watching halfway through the movie, and I'm like, I'm sorry, this is the greatest movie ever? (laughs) But then you look at it again, and you go, okay, wait. 
all the things that I see in this, all the techniques, all the concepts, all the storytelling and the shots that everybody has been using for the last 50 years were first done there. And then you go, okay, I get it. It's great because he influenced everybody else. So Bitches Brew influenced everybody. If you hear it, you then hear the influences of, as I'll talk to in a minute, Mahavishnu Orchestra and Weather Report. But then you also just sort of hear, you know, how rock changes and jazz changes from that. So it's great because of what it led to. But as far as, for me listening, I like the later periods later when he really started going jazz funk. So it's more significant as a historical document than exactly. really as something to sit down and listen to. And then the final thing I wanted to, to ask you about this is uh, we didn't really ever define you know, jazz fusion because we assume people know what it means. In the early days, what it meant was a fusion of jazz and rock. It later came to also mean a fusion of jazz, funk, and rock. Then it kind of turned into basically jazz plus whatever was fusion. <laughs> what I'm curious to know, though, is that the period that Miles is doing this, even though he is using Hendrix and uh, Sly and the Family Stone as the sources that he is citing publicly, I've got to wonder how much he was influenced by prog rock because these things are running parallel paths. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that because when you think about this era, late 60s, early 70s, we're talking ELP, we're talking Yes, that's all over rock radio. Oh, yeah. That's, that, well, hmm. I hadn't thought of it by, like that, but I definitely think that there's got to be a... Uh, mutual influence there. I, I assume that they're, well, the, the proggiest, uh, parts of, uh, of those bands probably don't get as much airplay. I mean, you're not gonna get, you know, uh, a 12 part composition from Rush on, you know, rock radio, but you'll get, you know, fly by night. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to get, you know, a 17-minute composition from Yes, but you'll get, you know, round and round. So I, I would say it definitely has, you know, a flavor of prog rock to it because it is. When I listen to jazz, I don't, um, I don't listen to it as a study. I don't know. Uh, all of the chords and I don't know all of the progressions that they do. I just listen to something that sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, in the same way, I listen to prog rock. I mean, you know, if I'm listening to anything from King Cribson to uh, some of the progier versions of Iron Maiden, you know, I, I, I don't listen for, oh, ooh, they, they changed to 7-8. Oh, you know. <laughs> But if it, you know, I think that they, uh, I like when a band can go the extra mile and explore somewhere different. And I definitely say that both of these, prog rock and Miles's jazz fusion, have a hell of a lot in common. Okay, we'll just. But I've never, I've never read anything that uh, he'd mentioned other bands like uh, like a King Crimson, which King Crimson would have been a, a really good one. I mean, I think their first album was 69. 
with uh, 20th Century Schizoid Man and all. Yeah. Which just, would have been the exact same time as Bitches Brew. Yeah, okay. That's good. I was just, just kind of curious on your, <laughs> your thoughts on that. If you're wrapped up with... Uh, with um, that, yeah. With, Go see... With, with Miles. Agartha and Pangea, but there are... Uh, I would highly recommend Dark Magus. Yeah. That, that, I, need to, I need to get that record. That was a great album. Yeah. I completely agree with you. Uh, so I will move on then, and man, we're we're really talk, talking a lot. What's that? 108. Yeah, we're talking a long time about our strange obsessions. And, <laughs> we're uh, so obsessed we can't even stop talking about it. I know. It. <laughs> I don't really want to break this up into two shows, so I guess we'll just do one supersized show. Um, King Sunny A Day. Um, King Sunny A Day plays a style of music. Uh, from Nigeria. It's Nigerian pop music. It is called Juju, which is J-U-J-U, like the theater snack, not like you are hurling a racial epithet at someone. And I can tell you exactly how I got into this. It's because I bought a, when we were down at that big bookstore in Columbus, mm-hmm. big independently owned bookstore, I mean, uh, village bookshop. Looks like it was like an old library, yep. I think. Had like two stores, two floors, didn't it? Yep. And Great I place. found a, uh, an 80s record guide by Robert Christgau, who is this very snarky, clippy little, I guess he wrote <laughs> a lot for the Village Voice. He wrote some for Rolling Stone. Uh, and he writes these little tiny, like one paragraph long reviews of records, which typically I like my record reviews a bit longer. But uh, he reviewed a lot of King Sunny A Day albums, and that's where I kind of got into it. And trying to, des- I mean, trying to describe Juju music to uh, American ears is really hard, and I can't even explain to you why I like it. Uh, everybody talks about how he fuses African rhythms with Western guitar sounds. I think that's total bullshit. I don't hear any Western influence in this music anywhere. <laughs> it's kind of, it's really funny to me because when uh, Bob Marley died in 81, uh, King Sonny got signed to Island Records, which was Marley's label, because Chris Blackwell, the owner of Island, thought for sure that King Sonny Day was going to be the next Bob Marley. And I can't figure out for the life of me why he would think that, because for one thing, it's not reggae. The lyrics are not in English. <laughs> and it's, you know... Marley um, pretty much followed your same, you know, your typical verse-chorus bridge versus mm-hmm. you know song structure. I just it blows my mind that a guy that owned a record label thought that this was going to translate well to the American public. Uh, King Sunny a Day has been making records since at least the '60s. He's one of those guys that people say he's put out 500 albums. I mean, how is that humanly possible? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but there's probably a good 20 of them that are available here in the West. Uh, he wears African garb. Uh, he's known for having like 20 people up on stage. Yes, there's electric guitars. He's got one album where they, it's called Synchro System, which came out in 83 and people were talking about the pop synthesizers that he put on it. And I've got that album and I listened to it and I'm like, what are they talking about? <laughs> there's no pop synthesizers on here. Maybe there's a synthesizer. But, I mean, it's, it's no, there is no identifiable melody as you and I would define melody. And 
the songs can be six minutes long. They can be 20 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does have one record. Um, it's called Udo, where every song is like under four minutes. Uh, and that's actually one of my least favorite. I really kind of like the long workouts. Uh, but I just don't, I listen to this stuff and it just, I am transported. <laughs> I listen to this music and I'm transported. Uh, people talk about it's very happy music, has a very positive vibe. Mm-hmm. I pick up on that. But for all I know, the lyrics could be about oppression and, you know, people having AIDS and stuff. Cause like I said, it's all in whatever language they speak in Nigeria. It's not in English. Nigeria. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> uh, and it's just Someone one of those, from there, please. <laughs> right it's, it's, it. it's one of those things. I can't explain to you why I like it, but I've got 12 of his albums. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a comment. Rate us. Five stars is always appreciated. <laughs> and good night, M. Emmett Walsh, wherever you are.